Welcome to the fourth episode of the first Fizzy Sherbet series. This week we are going to be listening to May Day by Grace Chapman and it is directed by Yasmin Arden who is with me this morning. Hello. (laughs) And as you know listeners we're sort of experimenting a bit with our series but if you listened to our pilot season you will have noticed that we do always include the director in the episodes and this season we thought we would like the directors to introduce the episodes a bit so I'm going to ask Yasmin what drew you to the play? Oh wow what drew me to the play I tell you what the intro at the beginning that Grace wrote at the beginning got me immediately before I'd even read a word of the actual script she mentioned Berlin and she mentioned cake and she mentioned women and friendship and I was just like I'm in (laughs) this is it this is for me yeah, I, I just was drawn to it immediately because it was just such a celebration of friendship, of female friendship over a period of time as well. That kind of being friends with somebody for a long time and, and knowing them so well, even when you're not necessarily with them always, like maybe you once were, um, maybe your lives have gone in directions you'd never have expected them to, but somehow in amongst it all, there is this real deep love for each other. And friendship is at the heart of this play and it's just funny and quirky and I really love these women. Mm. I want to be friends with them, so. (laughs) Absolutely, because obviously this is slightly different, it's not for stage, it's for audio. What excites you about making audio? Oh, do you know what? I'd never really worked on audio work before the pandemic. I had been part of a play that had been turned into a podcast I hadn't really done anything like that before. And then when the pandemic hit with my own company, I started to translate some of the plays I've been working on with my company into audio plays. And it just opened up a whole new world to me. And it's I've just fallen in love with it. The way you can have such a direct contact with your audience, the way that you can connect with somebody is so magical. Yeah, I think it's some, there's something really powerful that can happen with audio work, along with that kind of direct connection that you can have with an audience in a way that you can't do in, I think, any other form. Mm. But you're really in people's ears and in, in their imaginations. So you're, you're just directly hitting that part of the brain. There isn't any sort of divide between the story and the characters and the person listening. Um, they're right in it almost like reading you you start to create the the world for yourself don't you the the listener has to participate quite directly with audio plays and I think there's something really magical about that along with how you can change a world or a place in an instant with sound is just so exciting um, and really liberating you can really take it sort of I think, I think in, I listened to last week's episode and in your discussion, you were talking about how the plays can be almost unstageable. Mm-hmm. And with audio, you can kind of achieve that. Like It's a great challenge for anyone in theatre to try and stage an unstageable seeming play. But with audio, you can you can go anywhere and do anything. And that's really exciting, I think, along with that direct connection with audience, which for me feels really important. 
in all my work. Yeah, well, we, so we look forward to listening to A Mayday in a minute, which is designed by the lovely Joe Dimes. Yeah. And um, who's in it? Oh, we've got the amazing Tanya Loretta D and Lucille Findlay. They are both actors I've worked with before, but they've never met before. And so I kind of took a gamble that they would feel instantly like friends <laughs> um, and that we could work with that and really, because it felt like, what was really important more than anything else for this was that we could find two people who could have that kind of chemistry between them. Like we said about old friendships, there's something really unique about long-term friendships. And so I really wanted to find actors that I thought would hit it off and have that kind of chemistry between them. And the gamble, I think, really paid off. They were amazing. And the relatively short rehearsal time we had, it was full of laughter, full of joy, full of our own stories of the decisions we've made in our lives alongside our friends' decisions and and how they kind of interweave with each other throughout our lives. And it just seemed like a real instant closeness in the room. And we were lucky because we had Grace who wrote the play with us throughout the whole time as well. So the four of us were able to kind of create this little bubble of celebrating great female friendship. And so it naturally just all fell into place and felt really natural when we came to recording it. And the laughter was all genuine giggles. They were drawing out of each other. And also that no one felt like both characters have their flaws and both characters have made good and bad decisions. And nobody is sort of the right or the wrong one. Um, but there's some there's a really lovely balance between the two of them when one is up or the other one might go down and then and, and they'll swap over and the way they they bounce off each other and balance each other out is just really magical and they, they got that straight away they're just a joy to work with oh fantastic yeah well I think I mean there's probably not much left to say but yeah. other than let's have a listen to the great bubble of female friendship yeah enjoy so, so. <laughs> here's Mayday by Grace Chapman Kommst du mit raus? Eine rauchen? Hey, die, komm und tanz mit mir, schöne Frau. Nipples? Nipples? Lips? Tongue? Foreskin? You name it, it was pierced. One of those holster harness oh. things, you know, with the chains. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so this lad drags me to the bar. All I can hear is this god awful music going round and round. And are you listening? Uh, yeah, uh, to chains, chains. So, so he orders me a shot of something totally vile, which obviously worked absolute wonders because the next thing I know, I'm on stage with an entirely different, entirely careless. <laughs> Young man in chaps spinning around a pole. Diana, your knee. Chaps, Helen. <laughs> and yes, I'm going to tell you all about his bottom. Oh. It was the most delicious little peach I've ever seen. <laughs> Round, pink, pert, just... Do Arsenal play in red or blue? You're asking me? Yes. 
Red? I think red. Or blue? Oh, <laughs> carry on. So this young lad wants to introduce Queen D. <laughs> That's what he called me. To his friends. So he leads me to the dance floor area place and it was just flesh and chests and leather oh. and thrusting. <laughs> I think, I think I may have used my dressing gown tie as a whip at one point. You weren't in your dressing gown. <laughs> I told you, it only popped out for some milk. <laughs> anyway, long story short, I woke up this morning absolutely exhausted, fully naked. Oh, God. What's wrong? It's fine. It's, it, it's nothing. Helen? No, it's just I specifically said I needed more eggs for the cake and Peter forgot. That's all. Do you think two tears will be okay? Oh, well. What's it meant to look like? No, move your thumb. It's covering the script. Bloody hell, Helen! <laughs> How many people are coming to this party? Don't call it a party. It's oh, not a party. Fine, fine. A-level results day afternoon tea thing. Just the three of us? <laughs> Two tears will be fine. <laughs> I tell you what I'll do. I'll make three smaller tears. That will work, right? <laughs> that will still be nice, mm, yeah? Yes. OK, that's what I'll do. That's the new plan. <laughs> so that's 500 grams divided by three. I hope they know how lucky they are. Oh, I didn't tell you. I've been asked to take part in the open garden. Oh. Well, sort of. Oh. <laughs> 150 grams of sugar. Apparently, one of Charlie's teachers is on the panel, so he mentioned, you know, that I like to garden, and they're coming tomorrow. Oh. 150 grams of butter. But, I mean, it's not a big deal. Just a local event, really, raising money for charity. So that takes me to... So, yeah. OK, got it. Right. Oh, sorry. What were you saying? That's great, Helen. Oh, yes, well, <laughs> something. Hmm. Charlie will call you as soon as he opens that envelope. No, uh, I know that. I do. It's just he's got his heart set on Coventry. That's all. Coventry? Oh, <laughs> you've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> At least it's not Oxford. <laughs> oh, hey! <laughs> I really enjoyed my time there. Oh, bunch of overachievers. Oh, <laughs> speaking of which, guess what arrived in the post? Oh, no, <laughs> don't. It's a load of rubbish. Oh, where is it? Ah! Alumni Diana Carroll-Jones wins the Society of Women Artists Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, <laughs> Carol. The retrospective exhibition opened in London last month and includes her latest masterpiece, somewhere towards the beginning. Created in response to her increasing sight loss, this light installation on grey canvas... Um, <laughs> ..shows up close and personal snapshots from her life. Diana Carroll... Oh, oh stop it! Jones studied English literature at Oxford and currently lives in Berlin with her husband, award-winning artist, Jonathan Barnes. <laughs> See? You'd think just once someone would write something about me which doesn't mention him. Oh, it's a great picture of you, though. Oh, yes? You're wearing the gold caftan. No, oh, from my 50th. Looks great! You should wear that when you win. <laughs> Can we talk about what you're wearing yet? Oh, I knew you were going to bring that up. 
Is that a beige cardigan? It's cream, actually. No matter what I do, you insist on getting older. <laughs> what choice do I have? Speaking of which... You're looking remarkably young. Oh, don't start. Oh, that forehead! It's wrinkle-free. I'll have you know, I got a lot of compliments last night. One person in particular was... quite vocal about me. That's nice. Mm. They whispered something quite, um... Well, filthy, actually. <laughs> then they wanted me to... Reciprocate? Right, right, but I just... Oh, I don't know. I've never been any good at, well, that. Oh, it's easy. You just have to calmly and imaginatively tell them what you want to do to them. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> I really want to. <laughs> I like the feel of your. <laughs> Further to the left, etc, etc, etc. Helen, you dark horse. <laughs> Finish those sentences. No chance. Too rusty. Oh, come on. I really want to... <laughs> oh, stop it, Di! What? <laughs> no one can hear. I can. Come on. Come closer. <laughs> Whisper it. Just for me. <laughs> Pussy. Hello? Oh, hi, darling. Any news? No, he hasn't called here either. Do you think one of us should... It's just I'm getting a bit worried and... No, I'm not making a big... OK, yes. OK. See you shortly. Right. Gosh. I'm sorry, Di. Can I call you back tomorrow? It's just it's all getting a bit manic round here. But I didn't finish telling you my story. Go on, then. Make it quick. I woke up this morning with a woman in my bed. <gasps> Go on. Well, as I said before, it's all a bit hazy. Oh, please tell me you remember her name. Camilla. Her name was Camilla. Mid-forties. <laughs> I guess we must have found each other at some point. So you had sex with this woman? No! Uh, no, I don't, I don't think you could call it that, no. Hmm. Maybe you could. <laughs> I don't know. But there was plenty of other, um, bits. Like what? Well, just fondling. And? Oh, I don't know. Oh, come on. No! <laughs> What's got into you? Nothing! Diana Carroll! Fine. Fine. We danced for a bit. And we kissed. Then I asked if she wanted to come back to mine and we just talked and then... We were both suddenly very naked. And she was just so sexy. You should have seen her legs and her skin and her lips. And it was just so, so fucking <laughs> exciting. Oh, and this is my third divorce, Helen. And I just wanted to let loose and, and, and celebrate. False. <laughs> what? This is your fourth divorce. Oh, come on. You know that first one didn't count. Are you going to see her again? Well, she goes back to Barcelona today, so probably not. But she did suggest meeting up when the exhibition is there, so... 
do you think I should? I think you should do what makes you happy. Hmm. So you're not thinking of coming over around that time? Oh, <laughs> no. Uh, no. Hmm. I think it's probably best not. Sort of ha depends on what happens with Charlie today. If he doesn't get the grades, I'll have to get him through clearing, and if he does, well, it's his last summer at home, so... Have you been yet? To the exhibition? Yes. I went last week. Oh. Right. You didn't say. What did you think? Yes! <laughs> Good. Hi, darling. Have you heard? Oh, can you just drive to the school and see if he's okay? Please, Peter. Just this once? Do I have to finish getting ready for the, the, the do? Oh, all right then. He's just going to have a lie down. He plays squash on Friday, so... I should probably get on, Di. It's okay. I'll wait. Right. Potato salad's done. Cake's in. Balloons can wait. Icing. Listen. I wouldn't have told you about last night if I'd known it would make you upset. What? I'm not upset. Mm. No, I mean, I guess I just... I, uh... Just didn't realise it was an option. For you? Oh, come on. You know I experimented at university. The morning we met, I had a girl on my arm. Laura. Oh, I'm surprised you remember her name. Well, I wasn't that drunk. Oh, God. How many times? I did not mean to lock my bike to yours. Oh, those cheap plastic flowers in your front basket. It was May Day. She's a Conservative MP now, Laura. Oh, well. I ran into her and her husband at the garden centre. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. That's a bit unkind. Some people make their choice and they stick with it, and that's perfectly commendable. You are upset. And being made to feel somewhat... inferior or boring because you can't always just... Well, you know, flounce around being cheerfully unconcerned about the future is, well, quite frankly, it's not nice and it hurts people's feelings. OK. All right. See, there. That's what I'm talking about. I didn't say anything. It was your tone. Laura can't hear me. It doesn't matter, Di. You shouldn't pass judgement on other people's lives. Well, neither should you. She's got a lovely farmhouse in East Worthing. Oh. Three grown-up children she spoke very highly of and they're planning a Mediterranean cruise this summer. Plus, she was wearing a lovely linen dress, which was cream, I might add, and a big floppy hat. And she seemed very happy. You've made purple icing, haven't you? Do Arsenal play in purple? <sighs> I think I'll just try Charlie one more time. Do you want me to go? Do what you want. Helen. Look. You should have asked my permission. The photo of us in the exhibition. 
Berlin Love Parade, 2001. You can't tell it's us. I blurred out our faces. You kept everything else in, though. The arms round each other, the crowd behind. Charlie saw it. Charlie wasn't even born and, yet. And Peter. OK. That's less than ideal, but did they even recognise you? I mean, uh, no. I'm wearing a rhinestone bikini top. Oh, the other way round. We swapped, remember? I'm wearing the bikini top. You're wearing my Joy Division t-shirt. Are you sure? <laughs> See? It could have been anyone. You can't tell what we're doing. Oh, I think about that day sometimes. I don't remember it being so hot. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I don't know what to do, Di. Want to show me the garden? There's lots I'm not happy with. That's OK. Right, the garden. How do I flip the camera? Has that worked? No, you need to turn it round. Nasturtiums, so... chrysanthemums, they're all on their way. Helen, you need to flip the, the camera. The lawn needs a mow, but Peter said he'd do that. Rosemary over there. I need to chop that back a bit. Hydrangeas. Um, I've got some pots of marigolds lining the path, which I quite like. Can you see? Yes. <laughs> Looks great. Oh, roses. Yellow. Your favourite. Sunflowers and sweet peas. Which should be blooming soon. Yes, how do you know that? Mm. I listen when you talk. You should be really proud. There's a part of me that doesn't want him to leave. And a part of me that does. I think that's normal. It's just the... what next? Part. Because you don't know what that looks like. Because I do. Oh, gosh. What am I like, honestly? Right. Show me options. Uh, for...? The award ceremony. Oh. OK. All right. But remember, this is a Lifetime Achievement Award. I need something that says not dead yet. <laughs> right, got it. Right, so there's this from your 40th, which is nice and low mm. cut. As you know, an excuse to get the girls out. <laughs> well, I don't fit in that anymore. Don't fit in that. Oh, jumpsuit. Mm. I think I wore that to Charlie's christening. No. Sexy godmother. <laughs> oh, the dress I wore for your wedding. Mm. No, 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 that's too 90s even for me. The only other option is the black dress I got for Mum's funeral. You remember? Dowdy, but I can accessorise. <laughs> what do you think? Mm, no. no, 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 you're right. Oh, none of them are right. I'll just wear the gold caftan and be done with it. Right. You've got a cake to ice. Will you send Charlie my love and tell him I'm very proud of him? Diana, I... I... Yes? Finish that sentence. When is the exhibition in Barcelona again? 
end of next month. <sighs> right. Though, I was actually thinking about setting off from here sooner and hiring a car or even better, a camper van and just running away for a bit. Really? Well, I've never seen the greats and soon I won't be able to. The Sistine Chapel, the Mona Lisa, the Kiss, <laughs> Budapest, Florence, oh. Vienna, Prague. Oh, I know the route doesn't make sense, but you could help me work that out if you wanted. We can work it all out. How long would you be gone for? However long it takes. However long it takes for my skin to turn to leather and my blood to turn to wine <laughs> and my hair to become a shocking white and my breasts <laughs> to hang out of my bikini with gusto and I feel valued and loved because that is the least that I deserve. Oh, come on. Come and get fat with me on a Greek island. You can wear a floppy hat. You didn't lock your bike to mine by accident. I locked mine to yours. On purpose. So you talk to me and I really want to kiss you again. And Charlie's home. Will you wait? I'll wait. So I'm here with Grace Chapman, the wonderful writer of May Day, and my co-host Tamara von Verten. I'm Lily McLeish, and uh, we're here today to talk to Grace about her play May Day that we've just listened to. And just a quick couple of sentences about Grace, who Grace is, so we know before we kick it off, which is Grace Chapman is an award-winning playwright based in London. Her career started as co-artistic director of physical theatre company Idle Motion, devising internationally touring Edinburgh Fringe sellout productions. Her plays include Don't Look Away and It's Not a Sprint, both of which went on UK tours and performed at Pleasance, London. She's been nominated for Adopt a Playwright Award, longlisted for the Papatango Playwriting Prize, and shortlisted for the Hampstead Theatre's Inspire programme. Hi, Grace. Hello. Hello. Hi, May. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yeah, really well, thank you. Fantastic. So the first question that we like to ask all our writers and actually special guests is a bit of an odd one, nothing to do with writing. It is, have you got a sweet, we're called Fizzy Sherbet, and uh, one of the things that we used to do was give each audience member a sherbet lemon to suck on whilst they were listening to the plays. So just a sort of light one. You may not have one, but you might have. Do you have a suite that has a particular story to you? Could be from childhood, could be from now. Yes, of, of course. <laughs> <laughs> 
great so when I was younger I was obsessed with the, this pineapple rock um that I could get from the local corner shop and I've I've only found it maybe twice in my adult life since and both have been at like fun fairs I've seen it there and I've bought a massive bag to kind of see me through so it's kind of yeah it's it's very sweet on the outside I think and then quite sour on the inside Ooh. and it's absolutely delicious and every time I see it I almost like scream with joy and if anyone's with me they're like what is wrong with her it's just <laughs> <laughs> is it is it like a, a stick a, a stick of rock or is it um pieces yeah they, it's like a stick of rock that's been broken into pieces mm -hmm. but it's just oh it's so moorish and it's probably full of terrible things but honestly when I have it I'm like transported back to being about 10 and going to the corner shop and getting a big bag of it so I keep my eye out always and if anyone knows where it exists please <laughs> can you write in and tell me all, all our listeners please um, <laughs> yeah. look out for pineapple candy for Grace yes. thank you so much <laughs> does it have like a little pineapple in the center like a picture of it no it's really simple it's just yellow in the middle and red on the outside and mm. now that I'm talking about it I just can't I just really want some <laughs> I think we all want some now yeah. that's really good I had like little um, pineapple sweets when I was a child they were just in the shape of a pineapple like little sucking sweets and and I do remember them very fondly as well yeah but but let's move on now and, and talk about your play Mayday which we've just been listening to What was the story behind it or how, how what was your inspiration? How, how did you come to write it? So it began life as part of the Space Theatre in East London. They did a 2.0 fest in, I think it was, God, was it like July 2020? <laughs> I don't know what year we're in anymore. I think between before, the lockdowns. Yes, yes, it was between the, it was 2020, yes, it, yeah. And um, it was basically an online duologue festival, which was, you'd write for Zoom uh and then it would you know they, they they perform it live on zoom for an audience which was kind of amazing and they they qu quite kindly gave us some parameters by which to write to so obviously it was two people it had to be on zoom so you kind of had that I'm when I kind of approach they have to be in sort of the same space but other people were much more creative than me with it but they said that they didn't want any trauma and they wanted a kind of hope and kind of people coming together in interesting and unusual ways or and that really helped I think to be like okay I'm going to write something that makes me feel happy and hopeful mm. and at that time obviously you know I was thinking a lot about my friendships and my female friendships in particular and so I kind of wrote it for them really and just started thinking about these two women who have had this lifelong friendship and uh, and then the romance came in a little bit later. <laughs> It's really lovely and, and it's so warm. I think that's what struck us first when we when we found it, when we read it, that it's just so lovely and the warmth of that friendship radiates out. So, yeah, I, th I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit more maybe about female friendship and what that means to you. God, yeah, I mean, where do we start? I mean, <laughs> there, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm sure any woman listening has has got those female friends that feel like I don't know your total bedrock or you know the thing the people that kind of they are like family really but they have this kind of other special status that are like lifelong kind of soulmates whatever you want to call them me and my friends call each other the wombs that's what we call each other <laughs> that's great 
you know there's always there's those people and I think I don't know I think I guess I was just really keen to write something that made me think of them and yeah made me feel that warmth I mean yeah one of the big challenges was was creating this this lifelong friendship from nothing but yeah so that that's that's I had them in mind the whole time and I think Phoebe Wallerbridge gave some amazing advice to writers where she said write to make your friends laugh or write to make your friends cry and that's essentially what I did just channeled that great piece of advice and I read what I found so refreshing reading it the first time actually and then also rereading it uh, was that it was such a great meaty play for characters for older performers and I feel that that's something that I don't get to see or read very often or maybe not not enough let's put it that way Uh, so I thought that was something that really struck me as well and I really that was one of the things that I really really loved about the play as well and also that it sort of then you add exactly that sort of layer of sexuality on top of that, which I think is so important, which again is something that we don't really talk about maybe for all the characters. So maybe we can talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, actually, now you've said it, I do remember like the first idea that got me excited about writing it was, God, what if we had two slightly older women in their kind of 50s who talk dirty to each other? Like, wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> like, when when have you heard, seen that? Like, so that was probably the, the initial, like, drive. Of, I, I want to see that and I want to listen to that in a kind of way. So that's and then I and then I kind of thought well I definitely want to give a give a platform for slightly older female actors to kind of do some because we just the visibility of that I don't know it, it sometimes you feel like they're just sort of typecasters I don't know the I don't know doddery kind of grandmother or like, absolutely you know and it's such a it's just that's such a narrow way of looking at it so but this, the, so that's why I think the first line is nipples. The first word is nipples, because I mm. wanted to immediately get in with some some kind of sexual language. <laughs> yeah, and that works really well. And what, what I find really interesting as well, I mean, there's a layer of romance and, and sexuality in that way in, in the play, but also that female friendship is, is often about sex or like talking about sex and talking about your experiences that you wouldn't talk to anyone else about. And that is quite hidden, I think, still as well in the way that friendships are betrayed. So Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Diana telling Helen that she'd slept with a woman the night before, you can tell she's not told anyone else. Uh, mm-hmm. She's been wanting to tell someone. And the only person that she can tell really is, is Helen. And obviously that does slightly open the door for further conversations that they have and hopefully ending in that kind of hopeful way. But yeah, I think... I think female friendships are, are are complicated and especially lifetime ones, they change uh, depending on how you change and your, your life changes. And, you know, and so I don't know what my female friends would be like in my fifties. Maybe I'll talk dirty with all my female friends. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure it will happen. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, no, I uh, I have, you know, I can really, yeah, relate to also just the uh, older female character and uh, sort of being back in that dating world because the character of Diane has recently had her fourth divorce and is is sort of going, you know, sort of going back in yeah. and sort of, you know, going back into what the world of dating and, and I can really, especially now actually, is a really sort of great subject, I think, the world of Tinder and Bumble and it's not only open for, you know, 20, 30 year olds, but it's actually actually people in their 50s and 60s are using it and it's a it's a great thing to sort of be a 
part of when you can't like when you do have a parent or an older relative who's actually dating it's really great you know it's, it's just as interesting as when you're in your 20s or 30s totally totally and I think women female characters you know they reach a certain age they kind of just get sold off down the river I think and um, they don't ever really talk about sexuality or dating or like oh any of any of the stuff that comes between and it's just it's a shame because it is such a it's such a rich area to explore and how that's changed or not changed as well like mm. I imagine you know I think Diana is always been that kind of had that spark inside her um it's never gone out so you know it's yeah but it is I think with Diana and Helen it's it feels like when I was writing it I, I wanted it to be a kind of now or never situation for them you know Diana's just slept with this other woman she's got divorced she's single essentially um and Helen's you know son is leaving home hopefully and has this sounds pretty awful husband who'd play squash on a Thursday so <laughs> whatever it is and I wanted there to be this little window that opened up where they could go for it if they were brave enough mm. and I was really keen to to make get them there to the point where they do say what they've wanted to say and hopefully you can picture that road trip at the end I certainly do <laughs> Yes, totally. It's, <laughs> it's so interesting as well because you sort of see Diane as the outrageous sort of out there character. But then when you go back to what happens at the very beginning of their friendship, it sounds as though it was Helen who was who would have been the brave one and and she just wasn't ready at that point and, exactly. and couldn't commit. So that's quite an interesting reveal at the end. Yeah, I think play. so. Yeah, I think it is. I think, I mean, as I said, like creating this lifetime of friendship between these women and it's so, it's so hard in writing to share backstory in an, in a kind of way that doesn't feel forced. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the biggest challenges was like, how do I talk about what's happened to these women and their friendships with their heart? Like, how do I do that? And so it was, you know, using things like the exhibition to be able to talk about the thing that happened in the past yeah. This, you know, is trying to avoid that that thing that all writers do, and I do it, and I'm sure anyone listening does it. When you say, uh, "Oh," like one character will say to another, "Do you remember that thing that happened?" Yes. God, just so we can tell the audience that it happened. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so hard not to do that. So that was a massive challenge. Um, I sorry, I forgot what you were asking. <laughs> I got off on tangent. No, I'm sure you have answered it. Um, I think I just sort of said about the the different characters and what their their starting point was, and or like what the reveal was about. Because Helen comes across as a very staid housewife for right. a long time, and then suddenly there's these depths revealed and the secret that she's been carrying through her life. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I guess it's you know she goes from rhinestone bikini top to beige cardigan or cream as she would argue um, <laughs> so yeah I think there's but I as you were saying I don't I don't think that ever leaves I can't imagine that would ever leave you that that person inside who maybe did want to wear the wrong I mean I'm 34 and I probably feel what 30 and push so like I think that there's I don't think that just because you might change in your life that 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 ever goes away and it should be celebrated and remembered and so that's that's part of that I think 
Yeah, totally. And I think you have, when you're younger, you have this idea of what you will feel like when you're older. And then you get to that point and you feel exactly the same. And it doesn't actually change for a long time. And it's, it's very interesting talking about it with people who are even older than me. I am older than you. I'm 44. And someone said to me once, which I thought was really lovely, once you reach 20, you don't really change until you reach 60. And then you change. But like that whole time between 20 and 60, you're basically the same person. Nothing really changes. I mean, like a little bit, the appearance maybe. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I quite like that. Yeah, totally. So what happens, when, some... what happens when you're 60? Oh, yeah. it's, it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really hope that's not the message that we're sort of <laughs> sending out right now. Because Hell no. Um, I know no, a lot no. of 60 year olds who would definitely disagree with that. <laughs> I don't I don't mean that it, it was just it was just an interesting way of, of yeah. looking at it he, he was older than 60 at that point so yeah. that that was just yeah the experience but yeah so you originally conceived this for a play for, as for zoom which is really really clear and on the page obviously it's uh, very I, I love it actually because obviously everyone coming out of a pandemic or actually still within the pandemic but maybe not at the moment necessarily in lockdown really can relate to that you know all those zoom conversations and just the sort of yeah the awkwardnesses and the silences and the sort of having to go off and do something else and coming back and leaving an empty screen and all of those things it's, it's a great sort of the visuals are brilliant and I just wonder how you sort of mastered that then moving into audio yeah it was really I, well, I had a really great chat with Yasmin who directed this audio drama um because I was like oh like 80% of it works or naturally from Zoom to audio, or at least this script felt like it did. But there were these few moments where they would refer to something that you'd be able to see. That's mm. the first thing. And it's like, okay, I should probably, probably give the audience a little bit more help with that one. But then also I, I started listening to a few of the audio dramas that Yasmina directed previously. And there's actually a lot more that you can do with kind of soundscape and I don't know how you, this is my first audio drama, so I don't know what the word, right words are, but like background kind of sounds and like things coming in and out of focus. Um, and so she encouraged me, as she's quite right to, to try and find opportunities to do that in this, um, which I really enjoyed trying to find. But I was also really keen not to lose some of the really important things about the Zoom chat, which is you know, fixed time, fixed, fixed place. Um, I didn't want to lose that. This is one conversation that, that's from start to finish. There's no break. And I think there's still, yeah, I think with Zoom, there's the, the power of someone coming close to the screen or away from the screen, or as you say, leaving the mm -hmm. shop. So it, there was ways of still doing that in audio as well. That was quite exciting. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't too tricky, but there were some challenges for sure. And some opportunities as well, which I found really exciting. Great. <laughs> so it's fantastic to talk about Mayday, but maybe let's talk about you as a writer and the rest of your work that you're oh, doing at the moment. Okay. <laughs> um, what kind of, you know, tell us a bit about your writing and the stories you're kind of interested in. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And I, I don't know if I ever get good at answering these kind of questions. And I would love to speak to a writer who can articulately talk about what and how they write and why they write I'm still working all that out I think but I think like if you look back over a lot of my work it is mainly female focused or at least focusing on the female experience and I really love kind of quite flawed 
female characters or female characters that surprise you or do the unexpected. That really interests me in my writing. But I mean, I'm just, everything I write, I try and, I don't know, challenge myself in a different way. So it's other than saying like, most of it is about <laughs> what women go through. It's quite hard to draw a line like through them all really. I think I'm still working it out in a way. I hope I'm always working it out. Well, I, I came to see your play, It's Not a Sprint in Edinburgh, where right. you are running for most of it on stage with a helium balloon tied to you. And it's, it's a story of a woman who's running a marathon and at the, at the finishing line with her boyfriend, he's sort of, she knows he's going to ask her to marry, mm. marry her. And she, it's all about that. Like, what is that? What is, what is she going to say? Is she going to accept or not? And why? And, and it's quite interesting because it reminds me a little bit of the character of Helen in the play as well. So you kind of have a very sort of linear domestic setup and then you kind of work against that. Mm. Yeah, uh, totally. I'll steal that tomorrow. Thank you. Right. <laughs> I, I think I always like it when you see somebody at a moment in their life of like decision or change or when you are witnessing something that is important to that person in a quite staggering way. Like this is going to be a big moment for them. I'm interested in watching that. I'm quite nosy. So that's quite fun. And so, yeah, all I think all of my characters, now you've said that tomorrow, thanks for that, <laughs> are, are often at a kind of crossroads or the stakes are often quite high because yeah. that for me is, is fun to watch and dramatic, really. Yeah, the running play was, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, ran, I think I ran like, I think I, I forget, maybe it was about three or four marathons over the course of Edinburgh Fringe. <laughs> I mean, as if Edinburgh Fringe isn't exhausting uh, enough. Yeah. Just have to add a few <laughs> All the flyering miles on top of that. And the worst <laughs> existential thing about it is I ran, what, like four marathons on the spot. I didn't move forward. <laughs> like, the mind boggles. It really does. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I wish I had seen that show. <laughs> I have a good image in my head, though, of it. Yeah, I mean, every review loves to talk about how sweaty I got. <laughs> Every every single review was like the sweat pours out of Chapman. I'm like, perfect, thank you. That's that's kind, and it's true. Um, yeah. That goes on the poster. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah, five stars. <laughs> that's a lot of sweat. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, is there anything else coming up? Is there anything you want to talk about that you're working on at the moment? I mean, I can you talk what, about anything? Yeah, I don't know how you you guys have been feeling, but. Uh, I feel like my creativity or has really like peaked and troughed quite substantially. Normally it's quite sustained, but in the last sort of 18 months, I've had like bursts of like real creativity and then absolute troughs where nothing is happening. <laughs> and that's quite a new way of experiencing that. So when I get the little moments of creativity, I'm trying to like grab them with both hands. So I have just just actually I think was it two days ago I finished the first draft of a new full-length play oh great about a woman (laughs) (laughs) shock horror (laughs) um I I can't really say any more because I to be honest I I don't anytime anyone asks me to talk about it I um I feel like they slightly glaze over about two minutes in because I'm rambling 
do you know when you're trying to explain an early idea oh I I know exactly and I think it's I find it really unhelpful for myself to talk about it so I'm not going to force you to because oh, yeah if it's too early you don't really want to you haven't nailed that elevator pitch yet. Absolutely <laughs> not. It's I'm terrible at them, just full <laughs> disclosure. Falling mess at the moment, but there's something there that I'm excited about. And so that's really nice. Yeah, I agree tomorrow. Like when you when you're asked to talk about it, something it's almost like a little bit is taken away from you in that moment. You sort of need to hold it for yourself until you're ready to share it. Because it can still change before you do that, but then you feel you've nailed it down now. They're expecting that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> because I said it on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not committing to anything on this podcast. Well, but, I'm yeah. sure all the listeners will just, and us, we will just keep following you. So now we need to know what, what will be next. Fingers also, we have crossed. to point you to the sweet, sorry. Oh, <laughs> yes. Pineapple candy. I mainly want that. from if, if anyone sees that out and about, I want to be told. That's I great. Think, um, Can they get free tickets then to the play? Yes, absolutely. Free tickets great. So yeah. all my work. <laughs> get, get Pineapple Rock and you can yeah. see Grace Chapman for life. You, yeah. Free entry to all our shows. You heard it here. So easily bribed. <laughs> so you've been, what I, what I find really intriguing is because me as a director, I've had to sort of adapt quite a lot over the last two years to sort of make different kind of forms of theatre. And I'm sure you as a writer have had to too. Have you sort of enjoyed that challenge? What's it been like? Yeah, I really have, you know. I think when the um, commission first came in for May Day on Zoom, I was like, oh God, really? Zoom? And we... <laughs> And we had, en- had enough but <laughs> actually it was really fun to write to um I think the constrictions and constraints are, are really fun and it was really great to, to write within that so and then obviously now making an audio play again that was like I was like oh I'm a bit nervous like I've never done this before and how does that work and and but I think actually listening to audio dramas was so helpful because you can understand like that language a lot more and you can steal ideas and it's just it's re- it was really helpful listening to some and just re- realizing like what is possible and I think sometimes it's a bit intimidating in audio drama because you're like well you could kind of go anywhere really that like, I could take them to the moon I won't <laughs> but I could <laughs> but like so it's about I think I was just like okay I could they could you know th- th- there are sort of endless possibilities but what works with telling this story and keeping it kind of that in your mind. Um, but no, I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've really enjoyed being challenged. And but I, yeah, I do miss the live stuff a lot. I mean, yeah. It looking will forward, come back. It will come back. And looking forward to, there. yeah, a live <laughs> audience again. <laughs> but before yes. that, we're waiting now for the audio drama of The Woman on the Moon. Uh huh. Well, maybe they should change their road trip to be some sort of intergalactic. <laughs> Mission. I mean, there's still time. Yeah. What's this space? <laughs> Great. Um, yeah. Grace, it's nearly time for us to wrap things up, sadly. But we have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. And that is, are there any women in theatre or not, alive or dead um, from history or wherever, you, where you get your inspiration from? Any women who've inspired you? Yeah. For your work or, or just for your life? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, I think it, it's a great question. <laughs> I think honestly, like my friendships and like the conversations that I have with my female friends, I find very inspiring. 
and they often get a bit annoyed how much I steal from our conversations for dialogue <laughs> but I, I do think yeah it's those chats those chats like I don't know late at night over a red wine where you start to really kind of talk about really how it feels and your experience and that's the stuff that I just find really inspiring and what I want to kind of portray as much as possible but yeah all the women in my life they're all awesome very very lucky <laughs> thank you it's been so lovely to have you here on the podcast and to meet you properly and to have your amazing play so thank you so much for sending that in a pleasure thank you so much for giving it a platform it's amazing thank you Okay, so hello. Tamara and I are in conversation with Karen Strock. She is the author of the groundbreaking book on a previously undiscussed topic, Married Women Who Love Women, which is now in its third edition. So hello, Karen. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us on our podcast. So Karen, one thing we love to do right at the beginning of our chats is to ask our guests if they have a sweet maybe from their childhood with a story uh, or memories attached to it. I do. I was thinking about it and um, well, chocolate is my very most favorite. And my dad used to bring home an Easter bunny and my brother and my sister and I had to share it. And I go, I say, I want the ears or I want the, the pack on the Easter bunny's back. And my brother always wanted the base. And it wasn't until years later that I realized the base was the thickest part. <laughs> I used to feel so dumb after that. <laughs> he was very clever. And He'd then, worked out which was the best bit of the chocolate bit. <laughs> yeah. And another one was um, we used to go to the mountains every summer. And almost halfway there, we would stop at a candy store. And this is, I have a, my brother and my sister and I, three of us. And we'd all go in and pick our candies. And I realized... It wasn't the candy that I picked, but it was the fun of every year we do the same thing. And so that was um, most of the memories go back to family memories, actually. Yeah. yeah, the traditions of different sweets. I have some sweets that we have like a tradition of doing different things, different sweets. Like I have a sweet that I used to eat just in the cinema, for instance, with my dad. Something that, yeah, yeah, yeah traditions. Childhood. We used to bake a lot of uh, mandel bread, my mom and I, my grandma and I. Lovely. And she'd always look away so we could take the dough. Because <laughs> she would say, don't eat the dough, it's not healthy. <laughs> yeah. Just duck out of the kitchen. <laughs> Very good. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about the play we've just listened to, May Day by Grace Chapman. Mm -hmm. How did you feel reading it? What was the, what did the character's journey make you think of? Actually, I felt a little bit sad because I kind of knew where it was going. And it was just sad that it took these women so many years to get there. Yeah. You know, many of the women I've interviewed have gone through the same kinds of things. They, they've left childhood friends, girl, you know, girlfriends, and years later reconnected and came out to each other. Yeah. And one of the things, I, there are three ahas that I live by. And one of them is nobody knows what you're thinking unless you say the words. And so many times relationships that could be beautiful are just skipped over because people don't speak to each other. So it's... Um, that was my first thought in the movie, in the yeah. when I read the, the script. Yeah. yeah, the wasted years of that. Yes, and yeah. um, I was also interested 
Have you heard of any other examples of stories of women falling in love with women after living heterosexual lives anywhere in, in theatre, novels or the cinema? Well, my the oldest movies that I had seen were Desert Heart and Liana. I saw them years ago. And so those always stuck with me, especially Liana. The woman is a housewife and she goes to, to take a class at college and falls in love with her professor. And at the end of the movie, they have broken up, but the woman who was the housewife is walking and she sees another woman and she turns to look and the other woman turns to look. And I thought that was the most powerful ending because you know what's going to come. Yeah. But my favorite movies, actually, books, I should say, I'm sorry, Two Old Women. And it's a story about women in Alaska. And I think what draws me to it, it's not that it's a, a lesbian story, but it's a story of a friendship. These two women bind. <laughs> and the other one that I, I thought of when I was uh, trying to respond to your questions was Rich and Famous. And these are two college roommates and they go their separate ways. And you know that there's, there's a break in their friendship and at the very end, they come back together again. And I think with women, I used to say, if I had to give up my lover or my best friend, I'd give up my lover. Because when women connect, there's nothing else like it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think my my longest friendships are all women. So, yeah. 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 My oldest friend I've known since I, we were both in, the, in each mother's tummies. Wow. <laughs> that's how long I've known her. Yeah. yeah. I have very strong friendships with, with women who I went to primary school with. And it's, it's very, yes, it's amazing. It's a difficult yeah. choice, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I had a look at Kristan Moran, who did a study on the subject of late-blooming lesbianism. And they said a heterosexual woman might make a full transition to a singular lesbian identity. In other words, they might actually change their sexual orientation. This possibility is often ignored when a, when a person comes out in later life. The accepted wisdom tends to be that they must always have been gay or bisexual, but just hid or repressed their feelings. What do you think about that? I believe that the first love of every woman is another woman. It's the sense, the touch, the feel, the smell, the sound of that mother. And when little girls are about two or three, they're told you're going to marry somebody like your daddy. And now, thankfully, because um, gay marriage is, is the norm, these things won't be happening. But if I gave you three crayons, red, yellow, and blue, and I asked you, what's your favorite? And I never showed you chartreuse or purple or orange, you're picking from a limited amount. And that's what was happening with marriages. Women were told, this is what you do, and that's what they did. And me personally, I think every woman, <laughs> every woman has a tendency to be a lesbian, but only the lucky ones realize. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> I don't know if you want to put that in your <laughs> But it's just, it's a very natural thing to love another woman. Yeah. And you wrote this fantastic book, Married Women Who Love Women. Can you tell us a bit about what your, well, maybe your own experience or what prompted you to write your book? I was sitting and having coffee with my best friend. I looked across the table and I thought, oh my God, I'm in love with this woman. And our friendship was based on such honesty that within a week, I told her how I was feeling. And she said, oh, you're in love with the idea of sisterhood and feminism. And I said, no, I'm in love with you. Anyway, my love was not reciprocated. And I went on a quest to find out, was it her or was it me? Was I a lesbian? 
And I started talking to people and I realized I'm a very gutsy woman and this was very difficult for me to go through. And what about the women that didn't have the courage that I had? They needed to know that they weren't alone. And the more women I spoke to, women would, would tell me to speak to their friends or tell me that their cousins and word spread and women started contacting me. And I put up some flyers and I found that women across the country were responding to the flyers. Their friends were sending it to them. And I realized initially I was going to do an article for Ms. Magazine. And I, I realized the topic is too big. There are too many women. And so I was at a writer's conference and uh, one of the, the workshops was on thinking of good titles. And I was just too lazy to think of something new. So I, I used the title that I was going to use for my article, Married Women Who Love Women. And all of a sudden there was like a hush in the room. There were about 60 women there. And I thought, I just outed myself and now I'm going to be here all week and nobody will be speaking to me. And then this woman raises her hand and she says, how does a woman make that discovery? And then another woman raises her hand and she says, what kind of men are they married to? How do the children deal with it? And I realized that these, the questions that these women had were universal questions. Everyone has the same questions. And so that's how the book started to come about. Amazing. I'd be really interested, like, do you notice, like, an age on this, or is this just completely different ages? There's a whole span of ages. Now women are identifying much earlier. Mm. I, I have it in the book, and I don't, I don't have it in my head at this point, the numbers. Yeah, yeah because but, in the play, I think they're late. I think in the, in play, the 50s. In play, they're in their 50s, mm. aren't they? Well, yeah. what happens is once women become involved with marriages and children, they're busy. They're too busy to think of themselves. And once the children get older and go off to college, which she mentions in the play, mm. they have more time to think about themselves. Some women go back to school, some women go back to work, and they, they find another community of women that are more like themselves. Yeah, and, and what has been the reaction from, from the readers? Do you get fan mail or feedback or anything? The reaction, it's, it's, it's been wonderful. During one of my early readings, I went into a shop, a shop and a woman was clutching my book and sobbing. And she came up to me and she said, your book saved my life. She said, she wow. thought she was, this is in the, in the late 1990s. She said, that's when the book came out. She said, I thought I was the only woman ever to have fallen in love with another woman. And I didn't know where to turn or who to talk to. And I thought the only thing I could do for my husband and children was kill myself. And she had planned her suicide for a night that her family was going to be home late. And she was walking home from work for what she thought would be the last time. And she passed a bookstore and they were just putting my book in the window. Took that synchronicity. And when she saw the title, she knew she wasn't alone and she changed her mind. And even now, when I tell this story, I get those pimples. But I, I have, I wrote down some of these. Um, these are the kind of letters I got. If it wasn't for your book, I'd be a lost soul. I find myself drawn back to your book again and again. I find your book a place of safety. I couldn't turn the pages fast enough. It eased my panic faster than even Xanax could. One of them said, I highlighted everything that resonated me with me until your entire book was yellow. I also get emails from husbands, you know, wanting to know what they can do, wanting to know how they can make a friendship out of what was a marriage, things like that. So I, I really feel as though I was chosen to write the book. When I was in college, I had kind of a secret dream of being a writer. 
and everybody got their papers back and my first paper came back with a C and I said, what can I do with this? You know, how can I improve my writing? And the professor said, honey, some people are writers and some aren't and you're not a writer. Okay. And I believe didn't pick up a pen for more than 15 years. And that's why I feel as though I, I was called to write this book. You know, I've written many since. I'd appreciate it, you know, if um, you could tell your audience what my website is so, or Oh, yes, of course. Absolutely. We can do that right this second. It is karenstruck.com. That is the right. website. Is that right, Karen? Yeah. I'm a very eclectic writer, so I have a mystery. I, I have a, a, a lesbian paranormal, which um, many of the stories that women have shared with me have gone into the characters in this, in this book. So it's an interesting read, and it's got a twist ending. When you read the play, did you feel, did it resonate with the stories that you've encountered? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a woman that I interviewed who was in love with her best friend, but her best friend was becoming a nun. And she said she, she went and watched the ceremony and all, and her heart was breaking. And years later, her best, her best friend left the convent and they started to talk. And her friend said, I went there because I was in love with you. Mm. So here they were in love with each other and they just, their lives were spent apart. So it's so important for us to talk, you know, to tell people what we think. And one of the things I've learned is that this is one of my three ahas. I can tell you I'm a lesbian. And if you have a problem with it, it's not my problem. It's your problem. It's where you are on your own particular journey. And that realization was so freeing. So that's what I try to tell people now. Yeah. yeah. The play, when there was one line in the play when um, Diana said, um, I hope they know how lucky they are. And, you know, you can hear it in two different ways. And I thought, okay, she's longing, you know, that kind of thing. But we do need more work like that, you're right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because the more we talk about it in the arts and in culture, isn't it? It's the more, the more we talk about it generally as well. I don't know, that's, that's my feeling. I mean, that's what I feel with theatre and all art forms, that it's, we talk about things, don't we? We talk, we, we talk about different topics. We, we tell stories. We, mm, we try and shed light on stuff that we might not just, want to talk about or think about. Just the difference. The first edition came out in 1998. Women were hiding it under their jackets. They were changing the covers of the book and putting other covers on. One woman came up to me and said, I've bought your book five times because each time I read it, I threw it away because I didn't want anybody to see it. And then I needed to read it again. And now everybody is buying it. It's just of interest. We've come a long way. Now the topic of transgender comes into the book. And how does this play into who we are and what we are? So in your editions, because this is in the third edition, have you updated it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. New stories. Mm-hmm. Some of the old. The, the issue of transgender. And then I... I interviewed a lot of the women that I interviewed earlier, and there's a chapter called Woulda, Coulda, Shoulda, and some women were pleased with the decisions they made and others were not. Some wished they had done things differently, so that's in there too. And what's changed a lot is the glossary. The first edition we had lesbian, bisexual, straight, and gay, and now the glossary has so many terms in it, LGBTQ, you know, and on and on and on. So people are, are acknowledging their identities. They're not settling mm. for the closest title for themselves. Yeah. 
So it's an interesting read. I recommend it, you know, for to friends of, of, of women who are gay, to family members, to husbands, ex-husbands. There's a chapter on the men in there. Yes, it, and that, that actually comes to my next question, which is, do you think there is a difference between men and women when it comes to sexuality? And then I suppose particularly changing sexuality at some point in their life. Is that is that something that you've sort of, yeah, in your conversations, have you sort of, has that been something that you've sort of come across or thought about or talked about? I think men have always been more open than women. Women have always kept in the shadow. They did what they did more quietly. But um, I, I can't speak as an authority about men. Mm. I can only speak about women. Although husbands that I interviewed, some of them took the, the notion, I you know just buried their head in the sand and they didn't want to know about it. I spoke to several therapists and one of them said, one vagina and one vagina equals zero. You know, there's, there's no such thing as sex between women. And another male therapist said, I think every woman should be with a lesbian so that she learns how to make love. You know, so it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's each person coming from their individual place. Yeah, we talked earlier about the, the first relationship that every ch child has with their mother. And do you think, can you talk a bit more about the role of the mother-child relationship and what, what it plays in? Um... Just for myself, I, you know, you do have a question here on uh, women you admire. And I would say my mom, foremost. My mother did what she needed to do. My, my mother took care of her family, whether people would say it was right or wrong. She always had our interests most at heart. And when I came out, her first comment to me was, I'm only sorry that you didn't tell me when you were going through so much pain so that I could have been there for you. Unconditional love. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people are blessed to have parents that have unconditional love. Yeah. yeah. So as, as a child, I just, um, my mom was the kind of woman who could go camping and sleep in a tent, or she could go to a fancy hotel and be all dressed up with makeup. She could do anything that her brothers could do with carpentry and with this and that. And that's how I was raised. There was never a women do this and men do this. We do what we want to do. I wanted a, a cradle for my doll. So my dad brought me to the hobby shop and he bought me wood and he brought me a, a saw and a paint and he said, make one. You know, that, that's how I was raised. Yeah. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And historically, it seems that women's homosexuality existed much more under the radar than male homosexuality. We've just touched on that already. But... But do you think, why do you think that is? Years and years ago, when there was an inheritance to give, men wanted to be sure that it came to their offspring. And the only way they could be 100% sure of that was their keep the, to keep their wives. Well, people years ago had chastity belts. Women wore chastity belts to make sure they were pure, to make sure that the seed was their husband's seed. It had very little to do with love. People married for economics. Well, if my farm and your farm, if we combine the farms, we'll have a bigger farm, things like that. And so women were basically property. And so they formed their own relationships. They formed their own friendships. And as long as it didn't infringe on the man's rights, it was accepted. If a woman dressed in a masculine fashion, that wasn't considered proper because it was usurping the role of the man. But if two women dressed the way women should be should be dressed, then it was fine. 
And a lot of men felt that even if women were together, they were learning what to do so they could please the men afterward. So it, it all came from the point of view of the men's. But many, well, in the 1800s, we had Austin marriages. Those were women who lived together. And it was just, um, it was just accepted. And a lot of things that were during the military, women went to work and they wore coveralls and they did the jobs that men had done before. But after the, uh, the war was over, the magazines at the time, the publishers and the editors were males. They came back to work. They took over the magazines and they didn't want stories about women working and assembling airplanes and things like that. They wanted stories about women baking apple pies and being home in their kitchens. And many women, more so on television today than now in books, but many women took their orders like this. Oh, this is how a woman should be. This is how I should be. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's so important. I can't say it enough that we talk to each other, that we realize, oh, this is not normal. Or, oh, okay, you know, I can do this. Yeah, it's also about the stories that are being told and they then are what, what young women growing up see and take as an example of for their own lives. So it's important to have, have other stories like, out there. Yeah, during like holiday maybe. time, there are more people that, that try to kill themselves because they see all of these movies of wonderful families that everybody's getting along and they feel they don't have that. Mm. You know, again, so people just, they learn from what they observe. Definitely. All the more reason to have stories like this play out there. And is there, like, as theatre makers, obviously this is, and the theatre podcast, we're quite interested to ask uh, you this as well. Are there any stories you feel that you don't, you don't see in film or in theatre that you would love to see more of? Is there something you think we, we could, the industry could, like, help or do or... I don't know, just um, step up. It's funny that you ask that because I wrote a screenplay and um, I just couldn't get it marketed. You know, and it's so much of it is who you know, knowing the right people. And I just didn't know the right people in theater. And you can't just send a, a, something in over a transom. The big mistake that I made was I was invited onto the Oprah show after the book came out and I turned it down. Biggest mistake of my life. I turned it down because the topic was I had a horrendous secret and was estranged from my family and then they forgave me. And I knew there were too many women going through this kind of pain that I couldn't say it was a horrendous secret. But the reality was I should have gone on and said, while some people think it's a horrendous secret, it's actually just discovering a new dimension. Yeah. And so that was my mistake. <laughs> Biggest one. Oh, um, that's such a shame. <laughs> that would have been great. But um yeah, I can, I can also understand if it's framed like that, why you didn't yeah. do it. But you're on the Fizzy Sherwood podcast now. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> nearly, nearly, nearly that. Um, we're nearly out of time now. So um, I could be chatting on and on. But um, shall we come to our last question about um, which women you've already said about your mother but are there any other women who who've inspired you well my mom foremost but um oprah winfrey only because i'm so impressed with the the mass of women that follow her mm. you know and i watch her and i think about it and what she has something special about her I mean, she has to to have this following 
So I admire that. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank um, you for having me. It's been a real we'll, pleasure talking to you. Mayday was written by Grace Chapman, directed by Yasmin Arden, and performed by Tanya Loretta D and Lucille Findlay. Sound design was by Joe Dines. Our special guest was Karen Strock, and our episode hosts were Lily McLeish and Tamara van Verten. The episode editor was Lily McLeish. Fizzy Sherbet is produced by Steph Wello for Playwell Productions and Amina Hamid Productions. This episode is only possible thanks to the kind support of the National Lottery through Arts Council England and the Sainsbury Foundation. Thanks also to anonymous supporters, you know who you are, you can find out more about Fizzy Sherbert on fizzysherbertplays.com and if you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, subscribe and review.